This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Hi. <clears throat> so the title of my lecture tonight is... The Proverbs 31 Woman, Favored or Forsaken. Um, <clears throat> as the title implies, we're going to be taking a look at this woman who appears in the last 21 verses of the biblical book of Proverbs. Uh, depending on which version of the Bible you're reading, uh, the Proverbs 31 Woman is also known as the wife of noble character, the virtuous woman, the woman of valor, among others. Um, I just wanted to say a special thank you to the men in the room tonight. I know a few of you didn't have the choice to be here, but um, I really, I don't know if this is going to come through in the words that I say tonight, but I feel very strongly um, that this is, this scripture passage is one where the Lord has a word for all of us. This is not scripture that is only for women, although it has been treated as such historically. Um, so thanks to the men in the room tonight. Um, because I'm going to be talking kind of from and about this very specific passage of scripture, I'm going to start in a kind of a different way than we typically start lectures um, at Libri, for those of you all who are used to being here. Um, just so that we can all start on the same page, I you all probably have very different levels of familiarity with this verse. Um, so what I'm going to, or with this passage, so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to just start by reading the passage all the way through. Um, I'm going to just pray for us, and then we'll kind of dive into the lecture portion. Um, this is small, I'm sorry. Had some technical difficulties this afternoon, but you get the idea, but I'm going to read it out here. So this is Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, um, and I'm reading this, uh, this version comes from the NRSV updated edition. A woman of strength, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from far away. She rises while it is still night and provides food for her household and tasks for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid for her household when it snows, for all her household are clothed in crimson. She makes herself coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. 
Her husband is known in the city gates, taking his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies the merchant with sashes. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her happy, her husband too, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her a share in the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the city gates. Let me just pray. Let's start. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the freedom that we have to gather in this way, um, to study your word. Um, we thank you for this community gathering. Just pray that your spirit would be with us. We thank you, God, that your word is available to us, um, that you have promised us that it is the word of life. Um, and so we pray that we would receive it as such tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Just going to leave that up. Um, I'll confess that part of what got me thinking about this particular picture of Christian womanhood, or one that's often touted as a picture of Christian womanhood, um, is that in the past few years, just personally, um, it's felt more difficult than I'm used to um, for me to be a Christian woman in the church um, and just a woman in the world. Um, there are a number of reasons for that. Some of them are just very specific uh, to me and my life circumstances the last couple of years. Um, but some of those have to do with the wider cultural conversations as well that we're having right now around women and their place in the world. Um, like a lot of people, I don't know if any, well, I know a few people in this room, um, but I saw the Barbie movie in the theaters this oh. summer when it came out. It's good, Kathy. It's good. Um, and one of the things that actually started my wheels turning on this particular passage of scripture was a scene in that movie. Um, <clears throat> without doing too much here, um, in the movie, Margo, the actress Margot Robbie plays stereotypical Barbie. Um, and she leaves the kind of idyllic confines of Barbie land and goes to the real world, which is Los Angeles. Um, and she goes in search of the woman who played with her as a doll when she was a little girl. Um, and when she meets that woman, the woman's name is Gloria, and she's played by the actress America Ferreira. Um, Gloria is a, is a somewhat unhappy um, middle-aged wife and mom and employee. Um, and a little bit later in the movie, Barbie kind of has a breakdown because of all that she saw and experienced as a woman in the real world. And Gloria gives this speech slash rant um, about the impossible standards of being a woman in the modern world. So I'm gonna, I've edited this out a little bit, but I'm just going to read a portion of this. <clears throat> I'm no America Ferrera, so just go with me here. She says, It is literally impossible to be a woman. 
We have to always be extraordinary, but somehow we're always doing it wrong. You have to be thin, but not too thin. And you can never say you want to be thin. You have to say you want to be healthy, but also you have to be thin. You have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. You have to be a boss, but you can't be mean. You have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas. You're supposed to love being a mother, but don't talk about your kids all the damn time. You have to be a career woman, but also always be looking out for other people. You have to answer for men's bad behavior, which is insane, but if you point that out, you're accused of complaining. You're supposed to stay pretty for men, but not so pretty that you tempt them too much or that you threaten other women because you're supposed to be part of the sisterhood. But always stand out and always be grateful. But never forget that the system is rigged. So find a way to acknowledge that, but also always be grateful. (laughs) You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. It's too hard. It's too contradictory. And nobody gives you a medal or says thank you. And it turns out, in fact, that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything is your fault. Although the sentiment is different, I think this is how a lot of Christian women feel when they look at the Proverbs 31 woman. From this passage, we see a woman who is devoted to her family. She is mindful not only of the welfare of her own home, including her servants, but also the broader community that she's part of. She's a hard worker and is incredibly skilled. She spins thread and makes fabric. She provides food. She buys land. She plants a vineyard. She trades and barters and brings supplies from far away. She rises early, is industrious and resourceful. She has foresight and is creative and has a vision for the future. She's a provider, is successful in her ventures, is dignified and has a strong character. She is not anxious for the future and speaks words of life. Her husband and children respect her and praise her as do those in her community. And she fears the Lord. Even though she is described with all of these possible attributes, she can feel like an impossible standard to live up to in a world that already makes it feel impossible to be a woman sometimes. And trying to live up to her standard can feel pretty fruitless and just really like a waste of time. Um, In preparing for this lecture, I polled a number of friends on kind of their experience with this passage of scripture, um, kind of how it had, how they had heard it preached or taught and how it had sort of landed for them. Um, and the overwhelming response um, from women is that people have a very complicated relationship with this woman and with this passage. Um, hence my title, Favored or Forsaken. Um, I'll confess that I stole this title from a podcast that I listen to sometimes called Faith Adjacent. Um, Faith Adjacent is the marriage of two of my favorite things, which are faith and pop culture. 
Um, it's a little irreverent, so if you're squeamish about those things, don't go listen to it. Don't go check it down. Um, but they have kind of a subcategory of episodes that they do sometimes where they, where they take a topic from the Bible or from Christian culture and kind of dissect it and break it down and kind of decide if it's favored or forsaken. Um, and it seemed like an appropriate way <laughs> to think about this passage because I think um, it echoes the way a lot of women, at least, feel about her. Um, I mentioned that I talked to these friends, and I just wanted to share a little bit of the feedback that I got from folks. Um, one friend, I do want to point out, too, that I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but this particular friend is not American. So there is a cultural, contextual context to all of this that it's just good to be aware of. But this friend, who's not American, said that when she was growing up and she was in Sunday school, the boys and girls were all in Sunday school classes together until they were 16. And then they got split into separate classes. <clears throat> and she couldn't remember what the boys' class was about, but the girls' class was called Proverbs 31. Um, but she said that the class was about boyfriends, marriage, and having kids. And she said that they didn't actually ever read Proverbs 31. Um, and she agreed it probably would have been better if they had. Um, another friend described this text as a bludgeon that she felt like she had been pounded with her entire life, that she was expected to live up to it and was never able to. And I heard this type of sentiment from a lot of women, actually. Um, Another friend said that her mother had always held this text over her, kind of held it up to her face, both before she was married and after, constantly reminded her that this is the goal that she should be aiming for in her married life. Um, another said, quote, she can be all inspiring or finger pointing depending on the state of my heart. End quote. Um, another friend who's single said, I took the charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised very literally. I felt a freedom not to worry about attracting a husband, but to focus on my relationship with God. But I was mad when I discovered that there aren't many men who really just desire a woman who fears the Lord. And I'm still a little mad about it. And what about men? I did talk to a few men. I asked a few men if they had experiences with this verse. The vast majority of them had no recollection of ever hearing this verse preached, ever talking about it in a Bible study, ever interacting with it at all. Um, the few who had said that it had been shared with them at a point in their life when they were single and said, this is the type of woman you should be looking for to marry. And that was sort of, again, it was right. A close set. Um, but that was kind of all I got from the men that I asked. And I, once we open up to Q and a, um, and discussion, I am very interested to hear from other men in the room who might have a different experience of that. Um, A funny story I just want to share is from another friend who uh, she shared a story of this guy who, after a date or two or three, I don't know, with this woman, um, didn't want to continue dating. Um, And in her words, instead of saying something normal (laughs) to break it off, um, he said that he was really looking for more of a Proverbs 31 woman. And that's how he broke it off with her. Yeah. 
There are many, many, many devotionals written for women based on this passage. There's a very popular online ministry for women called Proverbs 31 Ministries. Um, and it's quite easy to find wall art or throw pillows with quotes from this passage. Um, I googled images of her. I actually find art a really helpful entry point into difficult ideas and things. And, and everything that popped up looked like some version of that. Um, they were all images of women who kind of text aside, but women who are faceless, kind of like amorphous and dreamy, um, and I just, which I just find incredibly unhelpful. <laughs> sort of at best, it's unhelpful. At worst, it's other things. Um, but I think this points to something that, like, in, that in some Christian cultures, she has taken on this almost mythical persona. She's the ultimate female. Um, the ideal that every woman should strive to become and every man should strive to marry. Um, I think, and I think part of the reason that she can feel so demanding is because of actually this way that she has been idealized and, and sentimental, sentimentalized, is that a word? You know, people are sentimental about her. Um, so what I want to do tonight is just, um, kind of dive in here and see what we're actually talking about. (laughs) What are we actually working with? Um, And I'm going to kind of start by taking a 10,000-foot view, which I think is always helpful when we're looking at Scripture. Um, Like To even begin talking about this passage and what it really means and what it has to do with us today in the 21st century, um, we, we really need to situate it in its biblical context. Um, when we don't do that, we get into trouble. Um, as the kids say, I don't think this means what you think it means. Um, and it's always important to pay attention to where a passage is and why it's there. Um, we don't always get an answer to that question, but it's always, those are always good questions to ask um, and to be thinking through when we're studying scripture. Um, and what I'm talking about here really is biblical hermeneutics. Um, which is how we interpret how we interpret language. How do we know what we know? How do we figure out what something means? Um, and it's helpful to know that, and this is not me, but for scholars and theologians who are regularly practicing hermeneutics, um, the way that hermeneutics is done, the standard practice is to start with the whole, to start with the bigger picture. And then interpret smaller pieces in light of the whole. Um, This is why proof texting scripture can be really dangerous and gets us into trouble is when we pluck things out of their context. They can take on a completely different meaning uh, than what the biblical authors originally meant. Um, Just as a a side note, I just, in all of my free time, started reading a book this week um, called the Bible and the Ballot, all right, by Caitlin Chess. Um, uh, I'm not very far into it, but the whole book, she's a, a political theologian, and the whole book is essentially how America has erroneously used pieces of scripture 
to support certain things about our political development um, since the beginning of this country. It's really interesting. Um, but it's a different kind of deep dive of what happens um, when we don't take hermeneutics seriously. Um, so to just scope out here, the book of Proverbs is really about one thing, and that is wisdom. And this is another reason that I was actually drawn to this topic. Um, I look around in my own life at some of the people in my life, at some of the institutions in my life, at just the world at large, um, and I see a, quite a lack of wisdom. Um, wisdom is not a sexy idea at all, <laughs> but we really feel the impact when it's absent. And I'm guessing you, you all can know what I'm talking about and can think of an example of that. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, wisdom literature is a genre in and of itself, separate from writings like prophecy or the law. And for the most part, wisdom literature includes the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Um, there's some dispute on that, but we're just going to stick with those for tonight. Um, and the point of wisdom literature is to answer the questions, what world am I living in, and how do I live well in that world? That's really what it's about. Um, Old Testament scholar, well, let me just stop here for a second. Just as a side note, I read a number of commentaries and looked at a number of things for this lecture. The two that I'm, the two sources that I'm pulling pretty heavily from are the work of Ellen Davis, who's an Old Testament uh, scholar at Duke, um, and the work of Bruce Walkie, who's a retired from a number of, a number of institutions. Um, He's in his 90s now, so he's no longer working and writing, but Old Testament scholar as well. So I'm not citing them with everything, but just a lot of this is coming from the two of them, just for those who care about that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, Ellen Davis writes that wisdom literature is, quote, spiritual guidance for normal people, which I love. Um, and to the biblical writers, wisdom, what wisdom means is that it means to live in the world in such a way that God and God's intentions for the world are acknowledged in all that we do. Um, Davis also points out that the biblical writers believed that wisdom was not only something reserved for hermits and saints, um, but was within the grasp of every person who desires it wholeheartedly. And Proverbs as a book is all about showing us how choosing the way of wisdom is the path to the good life. But as another writer puts it, Proverbs is about probability, not concrete promises. So, of course, there is no guarantee that trying to follow the book of Proverbs to the letter of the law, which you can't do anyway, um, but trying to do that, or even when we try as best we can to live our lives in the way of wisdom, there's no guarantee that our lives will work out the way um, that we want them to. Um, but you will be much more likely to get there if you seek the way of wisdom. Um, the other two wisdom books, Ecclesiastes and Job, um, deal essentially deal with what happens when living according to wisdom doesn't work out for us. Um, Joshua reminded me that um, he is doing a lecture later this term 
on Job, and is going to be talking a bit about wisdom is there. So it's just a PSA to come out to Joshua's lecture and hear about wisdom 2.0. Wisdom when it doesn't work out the way you want it to. Joshua will answer all of those questions for you. Um, right? Yeah, sure. Um, wisdom is considered one of the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, when we think about spiritual gifts, um, wisdom is one of those. Um, but the book of James tells us that wisdom can be ours for the asking. Anyone has access to this. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without fault, without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Um, while some people may have a particular gift of wisdom, it's a trait that the Bible makes clear is available to all Christians. Um, in Proverbs 31 and other places in scripture, um, this kind of disposition for the heart of the Lord is described as fear of the Lord. Um, that saying can be tricky for us. Uh, it can be a little tricky to interpret with our modern ears, but it's not fear in the way that we think of it, but an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and, and respect for the boundary lines that he has drawn between good and evil. Um, and when there is an absence of wisdom, those boundary lines are often tested and violated. Um, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. Again, just a plug for the Bible Project. If any of you don't know that, it's probably one of the best publicly accessible Bible resources out there. Um, they just put out amazing stuff. Um, but Tim Mackey um, describes wisdom first and foremost uh, or, I mean, this isn't his idea, but he talks about it in a way where he says, wisdom is first and foremost an attribute of God. Um, that's what it is at its core. But it's also kind of an invisible force that's at work in the world all the time. Wisdom was used in the creation of the world, um, and there's a creative, generative aspect to wisdom. It's not just storing up knowledge, but it's a force that propels people towards participation. Um, wisdom is something that you really only possess when you put it to work. It's much more than the idea of like a scholar in the ivory tower soaking up knowledge that they then kind of dole out as needed. Um, but it's something that is gained and held as we lean into it and use it. Uh, wisdom cannot be gained or utilized separate from our participation with it. And as I said before, it's connected to the story of creation. Proverbs 3.19 says, By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding he set the heavens in place. Um, the Hebrew word that's translated as wisdom is chokmah. And it does mean wisdom, but it also has an implication of, of skill like that of an artisan or administration or even like skill in war. Um, so again, there's even a, there's a creative and generative aspect to this word. It's a really active concept. And I think when we know that, it maybe shouldn't surprise us when we see all the activity and busyness in the description of this woman in Proverbs 31. Um, the book of Proverbs itself can be kind of roughly divided into two parts. Part one is chapters one through nine, which is kind of an extended discourse on wisdom. And chapters 10 through 
31, which is part two, are kind of the the short, pithy sayings that people typically associate with the book of Proverbs. Uh, Verses like, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Or, the wise woman builds her house, but with her own hands, the foolish one tears hers down. Those That's what we typically associate with the book of Proverbs. Um, And while it's often attributed to King Solomon as the author, um, it's actually unlikely that he wrote most of the book. Um, He sort of, Solomon kind of functioned as this symbol in Israel's lore of um, like a symbol of wisdom in their culture. Um, It's very possible that he wrote parts of the book of Proverbs, but it's unlikely that he wrote the majority of it. Um, it's more likely that it was written over time by a number of people. It's kind of a, a communal collection from one culture and community of wisdom that's been passed on over the years. Um, kind of functions more like an anthology of wise sayings from a number of sources. Um, and when the book was first composed, the target audience was young men. So that's who this book was written to originally. Um, most of Proverbs is written like a father or a teacher imparting wisdom about wisdom uh, to a younger generation. The one exception to this is chapter 31, which is credited, the writing of is credited to a King Lemuel, but it says he's, but he's sharing words of wisdom that were imparted to him by his mother on how he should act as king and the kind of wife that he should look for. Um, the inscription in my Bible says, the sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance his mother taught him. Um, again, the text names him Lemuel. We don't actually know who he is. If he was Solomon... There's kind of one theory that it could have been Solomon, and that was kind of a nickname his mother had for him. Um, then his mother was Bathsheba. So these, if it was Solomon, these would be the words of Bathsheba, but we don't know for sure um, that it was. Um, but either way, the audience here was a man. So just for starters, when we think about what I said before and how this passage has been treated historically, it actually was not written to women. So this is not a set of instructions to women. This is a set of instructions to a man or to men collectively. Um, I don't have time to do a super deep dive on this, but it's really important here to note the presence of two significant women in the first this first section of Proverbs. Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. So throughout the biblical narrative, not just in Proverbs, not just in wisdom literature, but wisdom is portrayed as a woman. But here in Proverbs, so is folly, and they're contrasted with one another. Um, Interestingly, and again, this connects us a bit to our Proverbs 31 woman, they each are described in terms of their houses. So in some ways that's not totally surprising because at the time, kind of the economic center of life for men and for women was the home. Um, But they're described in terms of their houses. They each occupy a home up on a hill at a high point in the city. Um, Bruce Walkie talks about this as being a comparison um, in the ancient Near East of, of Yahweh, 
one being Lady Wisdom being Yahweh, um, the God of Israel, and then all the other gods. Lady Folly being a representative of all the other gods. Um, but the fact that their houses are described as being up on a point of the city, if you kind of picture that in your mind's eye, they're both readily available to us. <laughs> One's not hidden and one in plain sight. They're both in plain sight, readily available for both of us. So they each occupy a home on a hill, and they both call out to the passerby, who in this case would be young men. Um, and their, their words are very similar. So Folly says, Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, Stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious, but little do they know that the dead are here. While in contrast, Lady Wisdom, just a bit earlier in the same chapter, says, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple way and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. They're both portrayed as alluring women. And again, given that what we know about the audience of the book, it's not surprising, right, that we have writers who are trying to um, create a picture of wisdom, of biblical godly wisdom that will be attractive to young men. So in some ways, it's not surprising that they're portrayed as women, right? Right. Um, but time and time again, throughout the book of Proverbs, we're admonished to follow the way of lady wisdom and to step away from lady folly. So in light of all of that, what do we make of this passage right here? Um, I'm not going to really tear this apart line by line, but I just want to pull out some kind of big themes that come out from this in light of what we know about wisdom literature in the book of Proverbs as a whole. Um, For starters, this is a poem. And actually, the entire book is poetry. And as I've learned from my friend Sarah and other poets in my life, I'm not a poet, um, poetry always requires more careful and intentional reading than when we're reading prose. This particular poem is an acrostic Um, which means that the first letter of each line or section spells something out. If you remember this from your elementary (laughs) school days, you would write your name down the left side of the piece of paper and come up with, like, for me, it'd be like, M, magnificent, A, awesome. You know, like, that's what what an acrostic poem was in elementary school. So that's what's happening here. But instead of spelling out a word... um, the the letters at the beginning of this in Hebrew, obviously, um, are the Hebrew alphabet from beginning to end. Um, so Aleph, Bet, you know, it just goes in order. Um, <clears throat> and this gives the poem a sense of totality and completeness. It's like when we would say, well, that's everything from A to Z. That's kind of what's happening here. That's what they're saying. Um, Sarah reminded me this week that Psalm 119, which is a very long psalm, um, much longer than 21 verses, is an example of this as well. Um, so Psalm 19, 119 is also an acrostic, also 
using the Hebrew alphabet. So that's something you can read when you get home. <clears throat> so one of the things that gets missed, I think a lot of times in our contemporary dealing with this passage, is the descriptor for this woman. She doesn't have a given name. She has an adjective. Um, some Bible translations call her virtuous or noble. She's the, the noble wife, wife of noble character, the virtuous woman. Um, but many translators think that the best translation of the Hebrew is valiant. That that's the best translation of that word. She's the valiant wife or the valiant woman. And that word means strength, might, efficiency, but again, in a military sense. Okay? So in a military sense. Um, one little rabbit trail I went down with this, and I, in my quick looking, didn't find any connections, but you get this same type of thing in Genesis when Eve as is described as the helper or the helpmeet. In the Hebrew there, Azer, Azer Konegdo, does mean helper, but it means helper in a military sense. And the majority of the time that that word is used in other parts of the Old Testament is actually used to describe God. Okay, so it's not the sort of milk toast way we like to throw that word around. Um, and there's something similar going on here, even though it's a different word. One translation is, quote, a force. That's one translation, way to translate that word. Um, and we just have to be careful here, because in our contemporary, certainly evangelical tradition, and that. That's where I'm coming from, so I'm not throwing stones at anybody. Um, The word virtuous, especially when paired with women, not with men, but when used to describe women, has a connotation of meaning sexual purity. That's what virtuous tends to mean when in contemporary Christian circles we talk about virtuous women. Um, Again, it's not really what we mean when we talk about virtuous men. I don't feel like men are ever described that way very often, but um, so it's just good to be aware of what our own kind of, what we culturally, what we bring, um, to this as well. Um, so because of that, the best name for her is really the woman or the wife of valor. Um, and so what we have here in the Hebrew is not a woman who is passive, submissive, deferential, or confined at all, but a woman who's showing up to her family in her community with a military like force. Um, she is a hero or a heroine, as the case may be. Um, and most Old Testament scholars agree that this poem can be described, described as heroic, can be categorized as heroic. Um, so it's very similar in form to the types of poems that would have been composed to hail a, a current hero or a hero returning home. Um, uh, Bruce Walkie says that in this particular poem, heroism in the battlefield is transposed to a woman's vita active in home and community. Okay, so what we would typically have in a hero's poem is all of his um, work and victory on the battlefield, and what we have here is the same thing for a woman, but instead of the battlefield, we have her home and her community. He says, 
She's, quote, a spiritual heir of Israel's ancient heroes and a champion for those around her by her diligent application of wisdom. Um, nobody's ever taught me that before. So I think this is just a, it's just a helpful, <laughs> it's just helpful to say, okay, we may really need to readjust the category that we've put this in or how we've thought about this passage. Um, this passage itself can be roughly divided into three sections. Um, the first section, the introduction, is just verses 10, 11, and 12, the first three. Um, and right off the bat, we get some answers from the introduction. Um, we get some answers about who this woman is and kind of what our posture or relationship should be toward her. So, as I said, she's immediately identified as valiant, which puts her in this kind of select group warrior class. Um, and then this question, <clears throat> a woman of strength, who can find? So the poem itself, out of the gate, is telling us nobody can find her. This is an impossible task. It certainly cannot be done on our own steam. She can only be given as a gift from God. This is not something that we can find on our own. Um, And then right after that, she's far more precious than jewels. So this wife and all that she stands for can't be purchased. Okay? We can't kind of create her or conjure her. She also cannot be purchased. Um, And so right away, we have this clue (laughs) that... This is, this woman, this wife, this ideal is something that is out of our hands to be or to dig up or to purchase. Verse 11 says, the heart of her husband trusts in her. Uh, Bruce Walkie points out that this is a very unusual verse because almost nowhere else in scripture are we advised to put our trust in anyone except for God. So this is a really unusual verse here. Um, The second section is the main body of the poem, which is verses 13 to 27. Sorry, I didn't divide that up very well on the screen. Um, And this is where we get a description of all of her activity. So the first part of the section is essentially a description of her kind of cottage industry that she's running from her home um, and her contributions to the family economy. She produces cloth and buys land. She participates in trade. She purchases a field. Um, She prepares a field uh, to plant. She does manual labor, and she makes sure that all in her home, and that would have included servants as well, this isn't just her biological family, um, are provided for. Uh, The second part of the section kind of looks outward and describes her social achievements, starting kind of in verse 20 here, with she opens her hand to the poor. Um, she provides to the poor, for the poor. Um, her husband is respected in social settings and among leaders. She offers supplies to other people while she's making sure that her own home is sound. Um, and in her community, she's viewed as wise and strong and dignified. Um, in the And then the very last section, verses 28 to 31, She is praised. She's praised by her husband and her children. 
and also by her community for all of the things that she's done and also because she fears the Lord. Verse 30. Um, I want to take a second. Oh, bad planning on my part. Just to look at verses 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. And then verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Um, partially because those are the two verses that tend to show up on the cross-stitched pillows <laughs> and the wall art. Those are the two verses that tend to just get pulled out of context more than others. Um, and they stand alone a little bit. They're a bit different than the rest of than the other passages here. Um, and I don't want to say a lot. Um, other, just to, to flesh that out a little bit, um, strength and dignity, her clothing, she laughs at the time to come. Um, and what that's really getting at is that she has such a trust in the Lord that she can, she is not filled with anxiety for the future and that she can look to the future, perhaps with imagination, perhaps with creativity, um, at what the Lord can, um, and will do. And in verse 30, again, this charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Again, this is certainly far from the only place in scripture where we have this passage about fear of the Lord. Um, but again, what it's talking about here really is uh, knowledge of the Lord and trust in the Lord um, and resting in that, not needing the approval um, of men. So, is she a real woman? Well, yes and no. Um, it depends a bit on taking it back to the Barbie movie, depends a bit on how you want to define real. The commentators note that every use of the word woman indicates that she is, in fact, real. It's a Hebrew word that's the same word that would be used to describe Marty or me. But I think it's fair to ask, in what sense is she real? So aside from it being humanly impossible for any person to achieve all of these things. I mean, maybe over a lifetime, maybe. Um, And it's important to note, too, that culturally, women in the ancient Near East would not have been allowed to do a lot of these things. So even wealthy married women wouldn't have been able to just go out and purchase land, right? That that wasn't done. Um, So... So we're not really looking at even a real woman that lived thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, I think it's easiest to think of her perhaps as a composite of what many people could do. Again, there is a communal aspect to um, not only this passage, but the whole book of Proverbs. As I said, it's wisdom that's been collected from a community for a community. Um, so I think we could think of it as a composite. Um, the poem does make the assumption that she's operating from a very solid marriage base, both economically and also relationally. It says her, her husband is spoken of in a very positive light, and he trusts and praises her. Um, I think probably the easiest parallel for us to come up with, for us, is thinking of like a pre-industrial 19th century American farm wife 
would be kind of like the closest, maybe the closest thing, where the home was still the economic center of the family, and the husband and the wife and the children all worked from the home for the flourishing of their family as well as the whole community. Um, but that's not how most of us live anymore, so it's really hard to imagine what to do here. Um, so I think in contrast to thinking of this woman, this woman of valor, as an actual woman who does all these tasks that we need to try to do and, and using her as a model of, like, you need to kind of have this list you need to tick off, um, the general consensus, of course, is that she is the human embodiment of the biblical concept of wisdom. Um, so kind of through this lens, we can look back and see, as Ellen Davis says, that this woman of valor is the embodiment of lady wisdom, who we see described um, all through the first part of the book of Proverbs. Um, she's situated kind of firmly as an epilogue. So this is the very end. These are the last 20 verses of the book of Proverbs. Um, so she's an epilogue. She comes at the very end on this whole treatise on wisdom. Um, in showing us in human terms what this might look like. Um, there's another woman of valor in the biblical narrative who's, who's given the same name. It's the same Hebrew. Does anybody who know, know who that might be? What other woman in the Bible is described the same way this woman is? Jail. No. Good guess, though. Esther. No. It's Ruth. It's Ruth. It's Ruth. And in the Hebrew Bible, okay, so uh, different order, different canon. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth follows Proverbs. So what the biblical authors have told us what wisdom is, They've given this, this like microcosm of a human model, and then you would turn the page, the scroll, what have you, um, and you would have the book of Ruth. So you have then this picture of not just this kind of pie in the sky model, but then we have this picture of what it would have been lived out, how it would have been lived out in real time. And then of course, we see this lived out in the Gospels as well, um, through the life of Jesus. A lot of people on the other side of saying this is a real woman that every Christian wife needs to emulate, the sort of other, as Dick would say, the other side of that double-pitched roof, um, is people who are like, we don't need to worry about her, it's just talking about Jesus. It's just all about Jesus. Um, and that's sort of true. Um, but I have, I have like the voice of my Old Testament professor always haunting the back of my head, which is the Old Testament is not just there to tell us about Jesus. The Old Testament stands on its own. The Old Testament does tell us about Jesus, but that's not its only function and purpose. Um, and, but, but when we think about wisdom and especially when we think about wisdom as an attribute of God, um, Jesus also, obviously, is a physical embodiment of wisdom, of that attribute. So, just to wrap up here, kind of going back, going back to my title. Do we think our Proverbs 31 woman is favored or forsaken? Um, 
I hope you think that she's favored. I, I wasn't ever going to stand up here and tell you that any part of scripture is forsaken. Um, but our interpretation of her, I think, could be forsaken sometimes. Um, but I do think it's understandable why Christian women would struggle with this passage and would find her so difficult um, to live up to. But she's a model not only for Christian women, but for all Christians to emulate, men and women alike. Um, men, as well as women, should be striving to live in the fear of the Lord, um, to seek to live in the way of wisdom, not against it. Um, one of my soapboxes, and I'm just going to be real quick on this, I promise, is we draw gender lines in scripture that scripture does not ask us to draw. And I was struck when I was thinking about this by the fact that I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been in a lot of Bible studies and small groups and groups with women. And I've done studies on the life of David. I've done studies on the patriarchs. I've done studies on the prophets and the writings of Paul. And again, I would love to hear from somebody if this is different. I think most Christian men in small groups and other things are not encouraged to study women in the Bible. Like, I've never heard of a men's small group saying, we're going to do an eight-week study on Mary. Right? We're going to do a deep dive on the woman of valor. And I think um, we all lose because of that. There are a couple places in the Bible where Scripture says, husbands, boom, wives, boom, fathers, mothers. But those are the minority. And the majority of Scripture... (laughs) is for all Christians in all places for all of time. And I had a professor who said, it was not written to us, but it was written for us. And I think we have to take the cultural and the historical context very seriously, but this is this is for everyone. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to put that plug in there. I get riled up about that sometimes. And... Marty Kies is so good at reminding us that men and women are much, much more alike, have much, much more in common than they have differences. But that's often not the way um, that it's treated in our in our churches or Christian communities. So um, the men in the room, I would encourage you to study women in the Bible because there's just amazing truth in life, in their lives and in their stories and in their faithfulness that is for, is for all of us, um, just as women can learn from the men of the Bible as well. Um, the last question I want to leave you with is this one. We've looked at this. We've talked about a couple of different women. Do you find wisdom attractive? Because that's really what this whole book is about. The whole book of Proverbs in the picture of this woman, this wife, we should be drawn to her. All of us, we should be attracted to her. But it's not about the earthly things that she's done. It is about the fact that she is an embodiment of God's wisdom for the world. And it's what we need to live and to live well. Um, and so that's just a question for you to ponder on as you leave tonight. Um, yeah, is wisdom attractive to you? There's a lot of people in our world that would say no. So, 
Um, And just to close here, I want to share a final quote from Ellen Davis. She says, the Proverbs are spiritual guides for ordinary people on an ordinary day when water does not pour forth and angels do not come to lunch. In a secular age when many people, and especially the young, cannot accept the claims of revelation, pondering the Proverbs may open a path into the life of biblical faith. Um, And that has certainly been my experience in preparing this lecture. Um, The timing of this in my own life has been quite interesting. But I've spent a lot of time this week in particular sort of doing a deep dive um, into this biblical trait of this Christian trait, godly trait of wisdom. Um, Yeah, so I hope it's kind of opens a path of life for you too, just in listening and thinking and pondering. So I will stop there. Um, For those of you who have never been here before, we always kind of after our lectures open up a time of discussion and Q&A and questions and we'll go on for a bit until I get tired. Um, But please feel free to leave. Nobody has to stay till the bitter end and you won't hurt anybody's feelings if you need to get up and go. So feel free to do that. So, comments, questions, pushback, thoughts and feelings? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you came across this, but one of the, uh, something I've been reminded of, I can't remember when I first read it, but uh, someone said in order to distinguish between the, the Hebrew and the Greek, sort of, posture toward the world. Hmm. Uh, if you want to understand uh, someone of the Greek mindset, ask that person what he or she thinks. If you want to understand the person of the Hebrew, follow that person for a day. Hmm. And I think one of the things that's worth remembering is that this is very ethically based wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not sort of conceptual, yeah. uh, intellectualized. It's really, as, as you say, how do you live your life well? Yeah. And, and I think that's we being sort of captured by the Greek West. Yes. Uh, we're yes. more inclined to sort of try to figure this out rather than just say, oh, yeah, here, here, here's a model. For me. Yeah, yeah. That's such a good point. Thank you for saying that. I want to comment on two things that you said. Um, the first is the comment about this being kind of an ethical model. And I think that's really, really true. And I didn't, I'm, I'm just realizing now, I meant to include and didn't include in the lecture a quote that, um, I can't remember where, who it came from, but it was saying that this, this is, it is an ethical, it is an ethical model, but it's preceded by relationship. Right, so it's not an ethical frame that exists sort of in a vacuum or in a bubble. It's preceded by relationship with Yahweh, right? And 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 so the ethics then are are situated in that relationship of love, in that covenant relationship, and that's so important, right? Because that's different from we're over here just trying to be ethical and doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing, right? Um, the second thing that you commented on, which is this contrast between 
kind of Hebrew culture, Israel culture, and the Greeks, um, is in how in the West we have so much of that Greek Platonic influence, right? And we're kind of more right thinkers. Um, and one of the things that I really regret that I did not do and didn't have time to do in this lecture, I was, I was sort of wringing my hands over it this morning and I was like, I don't have time. Um, but I really wish that I had looked at some commentaries by non-Western theologians because, um, because even just our idea of women, even just our idea of Christian women, like everything I've said tonight is based, is through the lens of white Western culture, theology. And that doesn't mean it's wrong, right? That doesn't mean it's wrong at all. But I think that um, we just have so much to learn from scholars and theologians who are from other parts of the world, who are coming from very different cultural contexts. Um, and so... I apologize to all of you. That's something that I just this morning was like, ugh, just frustrated at myself for not making a point to, to do more of that. But I, I think you're spot on. Um, and I think we could just learn so much more and be so much more enlightened about all of this from, from scholars and Christians in other parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah, Marty. Thank you. That was awesome. Thanks. Really helpful. Um, I've been listening to a series on the book of Proverbs, uh, Tim Keller, Series mm. of Servants. Mm. And sort of each one he begins by saying, well, what is wisdom? You know, what, we, we have the law. We have what's right and wrong. We have what's mm. moral and, and immoral. And wisdom is, wisdom is, but wisdom is that, but much more than that. Mm. It's very practical, as you said. Mm-hmm. It's how do, how do I choose this over this? How do I... Yeah. You know, how, how do I act in 80, I think this is something like 80% of the choices we make are not covered by the law. Right. They're not clearly right or wrong. Right. They're, they're choices that, you know, could be right. Could, you could, you know, you have, they have five choices that are not, none of which are against the law or, mm-hmm. or immoral, but, but wisdom is growing and being able to, to mm-hmm. choose that. And, yeah. and then what you said about relationship really hit me because, um, he didn't put it like this, but just what you said struck me. Um, that it's it's totally the Book of Proverbs and its wisdom in every area: speech, money, yeah. sexuality, all yeah. these things. Start with relationship to God, yep. but then relationship to the community is absolutely yes. central to what yep. wisdom is. So yep. he he applies it in, in the economic area in really interesting, challenging ways, given how our culture's economy works. Because you're yeah. What Proverbs would say is the, the meaning of the word right. I think he quotes Bruce, Bruce Walking Walk on righteousness has the way it's defined in, in Proverbs and in the Bible is has everything to do with your relationship to the community. Yeah. Is what you're doing yeah. upbuilding to the Is it for the common good? Yep. And so he applies this to if, in your, if your business model has only one bottom line mm-hmm. and it's profit, then you have, you have been seduced by. Um, by non-wisdom, by non by mm-hmm. non-Christian thinking, non-biblical thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think about, if someone thinks about buying a company, and they look at two companies, and one of them, you know, one of them is all about the bottom line, and the other one is actually giving back to the community. 
that's the righteous one, that's the wise one. Yeah. So it, that's really, I hadn't thought of it that way, that, but the relationship that is with God, it's love, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, mm-hmm. actually how that works out in practical day-to-day living. is all about Proverbs, and, and yeah. I've never heard anybody see the Proverbs 31 woman as the the personification of lady wisdom. I think that's really interesting. Because mm-hmm. if you look at all the things she does, she's she's not lady. She, I mean, she's basically the application of so many of It's the, work, the it's speech, power. it's relationship, yeah. it's all those things Words, that you just listed. Poor, yep. Yep. It's, it's really interesting point. Yeah, yeah. Really awesome. Yeah, thank you, Marty. Yeah, again, two things that you said that I just want to follow up on. Um, one is your first point when you kind of were citing Tim Keller and it was like, Proverbs, like, it's not law, it's different. Um, we were, where's Barbara? We were talking the other day at tea time. I was just like spitballing some of the, the students were like, what are you going to talk about? And I was like, I don't know, fun. Just kind of throwing some things out. But Barbara asked the question, which I thought was such a good one, which is, she said, what's the difference between wisdom and discernment? And I, and there's a, and I don't have a clean answer for that, but there's obviously a connection. And I think that's part of what you're getting at, Marty, is this idea of like, it's not a rule book, right? It's not a, like, if you do this and then do this and do that and do that. It's like, no, we, and, and that's one thing I loved. This was this concept to me that, that wisdom is active and participatory. It's not just a collection of knowledge. It's, um, and that idea that we, like an artisan, we use it, <laughs> right? We push the limits of it. We see what it can do. And that's part of what discernment is, right? That it, it's not a clear do this, do that. It, it requires it requires wisdom. Living living life well is not a clear pa- paved path. It, it requires wisdom and it requires discernment. Um, and then the other thing, the economic piece, is that um, that's something I noted too. I have some like notes here in my like additional notes dump column because I didn't have time to go into it. But Ellen Davis talks about that. How there's in specifically in Proverbs thirty one. Um, this person, not just the whole book of Proverbs, but this particular passage, even she talks about that economy and that, you know, it's so clear that yes, she's caring for her family. She's also caring for her household servants. She's also mindful of the community. This is where studying theologians who are in other cultures that are more communal cultures, we can learn so much from them because it's so foreign to us in the way that we live. Um, and she, I don't know if I can, make sense of any of my gibberish here, but, um, yeah, I mean, she talks about one reason that this is so hard for us to get our hands around is because we don't live like this anymore, right? We don't, we don't live in a home-based economy. We live in a consumer economy, at least in this country or in the West. We live in a consumer economy and the home is no longer a place of production in the best use of that word, for the sake of community, the home is a place of consumption. The home tends to be a consumer-focused place. So anyway, there's there's a lot there that I didn't, so that's a rabbit trail I didn't go down, but there's a lot there. Yeah, Joshua. I'm um, just curious if you, if you don't tell me that just because um, you're saying in verse 10, one of strength, if, if you, you, you kind of deployed the word Valiancy, right? Or valor. valor, yeah, valor. valor. Yeah, that's not the translation. Is it the same, like, because there's a bunch of other times it speaks about her as being strong, her strength. Yeah. Do you know if it's the same 
I don't know. That's a that's a great question. Um, it's okay if you don't know. I don't know. I was gonna. I do have the Hebrew somewhere, but I don't know. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, Ben. I was um, interested in just uh, the way you began your talk and just talking about how this is often in the lives of young Christian women and girls. This is kind of held over their heads as an impossibility, but but it seems. Um, yeah, but but not actually necessarily looking at the body of the text itself, but, but mm-hmm. the, the little snippets removed and sentimentalized mm-hmm. is, is, the, is the unrealistic standard mm-hmm. being held up to. Um, and uh, whereas when you actually look at, look at what's being said, in typical sort of white American uh, evangelicalism, this is not the description of an ideal woman in some ways. Right, you know, no. This right. is, at least not, not, not mm. what, what conservative American Christianity calls a traditional woman at all. Mm. And, and part of the reason is, is, that it, is that it's pre-industrial, ancient Near East yeah. you know, context. Yeah, yeah. Where, yeah. where um, there's, no, there's no, like... Uh, Woman tends to the heart, men is the man is the breadwinner kind of dichotomy yeah. at all. Right. Um, if anything, the guy is the passive one in here. He goes and sits by the city gates and gets respected while his wife is like actually mm-hmm. making it happen. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. You're, like selling fields, she's a businesswoman. Yeah. She's um, but she's making her arms strong. I love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's working she hard and getting. Shouldn't getting, have to. Getting strong. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and I guess I guess there's there's uh, yeah. I'm just I'm just trying to get my head around why you know as as we look at it in its ancient context and actually just read the, the, the text itself, it it's a hard thing to measure up to in a sense. But also, but, but given the fact that it's not the law, mm. these aren't specific commands. Mm-hmm. It's giving you an image and a picture mm-hmm. of someone who's not lazy, someone who's industrious, someone who who plans for the future but is still humble before the Lord. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are things that we are supposed to shoot for and we are supposed to grow in. It's mm-hmm. not just completely... Mm-hmm. It's not such an ideal that it's just out of the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. It, it's something to that's supposed to grab our imaginations and inspire us and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, whether or not we're actually weaving fabric or not. Yeah. But, but some... Um, I, can I add into that? Amazing. What you said... I don't disagree with anything you just said. Just to flesh out, I think what I've, and I don't personally have a ton of baggage with this verse, actually, passage, but when I've just in conversations with women and you bring it up and women are like, oh my God, like roll their eyes, whatever. Um, I don't disagree with you, Ben, but I think how it can be taught uh, or put forward is it's, like, you're responsible for all the things in the home. Yeah. You're responsible for all the things in your home. Your husband's out there doing his thing, mm-hmm. being, you know, kissing babies and shaking hands. And um, and you got to stay home. you got to be the one that's up in the middle of the night. It's like, you know, some people look at this, and, I mean, another way to look at this is, like, she doesn't sleep. She has no voice. We don't, we don't hear from her. She doesn't speak. 
She doesn't speak in this. Um, she doesn't sleep. One of the interesting things is there's, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it. There's, okay, so there is uh, verse 15. She rises while it is still night. But there is another, the passage about like her lamp does not go out. There's one about that. That actually has more to do with like the financial security of her household. It doesn't necessarily mean it's that. She's not going to run out of oil in the middle of the night. She's not going to run out of oil in the middle of the night. Exactly. She's not necessarily awake. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, right. But, but I, but I think, I think that although you're right, in some ways this isn't what we expect, there is a piece of it where it's like, you don't talk, you take care of everything at home, you, you put your own perhaps health and well-being and sleep aside, and obviously we're all called to do that at times, right, for our families. But, but that sense, because you don't see a man doing that here at all. Um, and I think there's, I mean, I'm not the person to speak to this because I'm not married and I don't have children. But I think, you know, there's a, I think there's a lot of conversations happening right now. I think it's really good that they're happening about the mental load that women carry um, and the the sort of un, the work that women do that isn't quantified or qualified or, or whatever. And so I think that there's a sense of like, he's going to be out doing his thing and you're going to do everything else. So I think that's where some of it comes from. So I don't disagree sure, with anything that's, you said, that's, that's Ben, but just to kind of flesh that, that out. Yeah. 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 Ben, was it saying something about this doesn't sound like the conservative ideal of women? I assure you, it can be spun that way. Yes, yeah. <laughs> That's a great way, actually, to say it, Emily. It's it yeah. it can be spun that like, way. Oh, the Proverbs thirty-one yeah. woman makes linen garments and sells them. Well, in addition to gardening for your family and cooking all your food from scratch and sewing all the clothes for your family, you need to be running a multi-level marketing business out of your home and bringing in money for your family because your lamp can't go yeah. out at night. And and it can be. It's also used for. A, it's it's used as an argument against women working outside of the home as well. Like, it, it's used that way as well. Which makes the whole thing about selling the field really interesting. Yeah. Because why is that there if that was not even possible in the ancient context? Right. That's, that's, like, that's like business transaction out of the home. Yeah. Like, significant yeah. decision-making. Yeah, she's moving and shaking, so for sure. I'm just intrigued what's going on there. Though. Yeah. Marty? Um, it's interesting. I read the, the, the few verses before, before that gives you even more context. Yeah. Which is again, as you said, it's, this is the advice of, of the king's mother to yep. the king as to as to what sort of woman he should marry. Mm-hmm. And you read what he said, what, what his mother says to him, and you get more sense of what his job is meant to be. That he's actually not just sitting in the gates. He's that that. The kings of Israel were meant to care for the poor. They were meant to legislate for the poor. They were, so he says, not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine or for the rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who's perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Um, let them drink and forget their poverty, remember their misery no more. You open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Mm-hmm. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy, and then this is the kind of wife you should marry mm-hmm. to help you in this your kingly mm-hmm. tasks. It all mm-hmm. has to do with with mm-hmm. justice, caring for the poor, mm-hmm. not drinking, and not yeah. marrying the wrong the wrong women. And 
if it weren't Bathsheba, then Solomon should have taken her advice. Well, <laughs> one of the one of the arguments for why Solomon is not the primary author of this book is because he was in some ways a terrible example of these things and so people are like it's unlikely he would have been writing all this stuff about caring for the poor and caring for the needy when he didn't do that himself so that's one of the kind of theories right of of why he didn't write this whole book but yeah um i was struck by my wife and i are very much involved with afghanistan Mm, yes so what has happened there and the view of uh, the Taliban and mm-hmm. the role of women shows the direction that human culture can go. Mm. And it seems to me that this is a contrast mm. to what that uh, might be. Could you flesh that out a little bit more? Well, um, I mean, the picture of a woman here is, seems to me to be in great contrast with the, the picture of the role of a woman in Taliban yeah. society. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually not just uh, Afghanistan. Uh, we just recently read or heard a, a podcast about uh, Yemen and mm. Houthis, mm. and that's they yeah. have the same, yeah. the same uh, view. But in, yeah. in in old times and in these cultures still, this is what women do. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, certainly in Africa and in mm-hmm. other cultures too, mm-hmm. a woman does have that responsibility. Mm to see that her family mm-hmm. is fed like that. Um, mm-hmm. And she can't, she could consider it the old Maya. Yeah. She, she, she does bring things to market and sell them. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, so it's still going on. Sure, yeah. Much of... Uh, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, other parts of the world. Yeah. Barbara? You could also say that this woman has a lot of freedom. Mm-hmm. I mean, she yeah. can go out there and buy a piece of land. And... I, as I was sitting here, I've got ten friends that I can tell. I can tell you that Nina is fourteen and fifteen because she has <laughs> a restaurant mm. and takes care of her people, her staff, mm. pays her um, her young waiters and waitresses for their grades mm. when they bring their report cards. You know, <laughs> and uh, I can tell you about Carrie. Verse 20, she has started a program in D.C. where she feeds the homeless men mm-hmm. in a very unique way. She mm-hmm. makes coins so that people can give them coins and then they can go to a restaurant mm-hmm. and turn in the coins and get food. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's, it's, it was fun to see my friends mm-hmm. live out yeah. of these. And that's, what I, and that's what I love about the idea that, that this could be seen as a composite mm-hmm. of a community. Because I think you're, I think you're really getting at that, and, and like we talked about before, you know, the the culture of the time was such a communal culture, um, and it's, yeah, it's for in, in other parts of the world today still is, but in the West is less so. Um, but I really love that picture. But yeah, Kathy. Well, I just wanted to say amen to what you're talking about because it is. Um, people doing things within the community, like feeding the poor. Mm-hmm. And I, I see it also, what Marty was saying about it being relational, yeah. that it goes back to our relationship with God first and foremost. Mm-hmm. You know, the heart of his children should trust in him. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. verse 11. Yep. I, when I read it like that, you know, in terms of what my relationship with God should look like, mm-hmm. God does me good. 
and not harm mm -hmm. all the days of my life, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And those are things that I think are worthwhile reminding ourselves of. Yeah, today. absolutely. And the com community, as far as the community goes, I mean, I think that could be any person that you're thrown with on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like Marty pointed out before, it's loving God and loving our neighbor, right? right? So right. that's our neighbor. That's such a right. wide category. Yeah, I don't even know my neighbors. But, but it, yeah, but it, right, it doesn't have to be just the person across the street. It's, right, right. It can be kind of whoever... Comes, comes across our path. Why? Yeah. Yeah. And again, just a reminder that everything we've talked about and everything we said is true for men as well, right? This is not just all the things we're saying, all the things we're pulling apart. It's, it's, this is all true for men as well. Yeah. I will say too, just, just the community thing, mm -hmm. it's getting more and more difficult because I don't know if you've noticed. But I honestly see everybody looking at their cell phones all the sure. time. Yeah, sure. All the time. Yeah. And it's yeah. like I want to say, I want to go over and rip it out of their head yeah. and say, I need some company. Would you please talk to me? Yeah. 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 yeah, technology has completely impacted our ability to even just see one another, much less talk and interact and be neighbors, right? We just don't even see each other. So, yeah. Esther? Um. From, like, the first time when you read this, verse 10 really struck me, and, and later than what you talked about with, you know, this being a picture of the human embodiment of wisdom, um, in any of the commentaries you looked at, was there, were there any threads drawn to Job? Job, you know, it's mm. like about suffering, but there's this chunk that's a poem about wisdom, mm. and it talks about mining. Mm, mm, it's like a huge part of it and then it's like but where is wisdom to be found if you mine in the earth will you find it mm, um, interesting yeah and I think it's really interesting that they both have, both have that question of like where is this to be found yeah yeah and then the image of like mining and finding precious metals and yeah and that's such a good point I didn't come across anything like that so Joshua Chestnut, you're up. I put that on your list. Put that on your list of things. Yeah. No, that's a great. That's a great point, though. Yeah. But it's interesting what you said. You know, where is wisdom to be found? But there's Lady Wisdom in the city, right there, visible. Right there. Yeah. There, there should be people. You know, Lord willing, we have people in our lives we can look at who are wise people. Who yeah. Like Lady Wisdom examples. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that it goes back to that question of, like, do you find wisdom attractive? Like, are you drawn to it? Will you listen when you, you there's, you know, we have Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly calling out, but we all know there's way more than two voices in our lives and our culture calling out to us. Um, maybe, Barbara, that's where discernment comes in a little bit, too, right, of being able to say, what is the voice of wisdom versus the voice of folly or something totally different? Um, and it's right on the one hand, it is this contrast because I love that picture you just gave Esther of like mining of like digging, digging, like, where is it? Where can it be found? But then James says, all we have to do is ask. Yeah. Right. And, and, the um, the Bible project, they have this like beautiful video, kind of the way they depict it is this like woman, like roaming the earth and just like listening for people to call out to her. Right. She's just longing, longing for someone to call out to her and she'll go to them. Right. So it there is this contrast of like it actually is available to us. Like God wants to give it to us. 
It's not something he's withholding. It's not, we don't have to tie ourselves in knots to get it. And that's, yeah, that's the point of the job. Yeah. Wisdom with the Lord. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep, yeah. 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 The, uh, the, the reference to James, I think, is an interesting one because... Of all the New Testament books, that would seem to be the most ethical. Hmm. Under what sixty plus uh, imperatives in it? Hmm. Do this, do this, do hmm. this, do this. And uh, and I think okay, so. Even the idea of asking for wisdom, we can sort of cheapen that by thinking, you know, instead of a totemism, just rub the lamp and <laughs> you know it'll. Yeah, and I think it's still, and which is why I think the contrast to digging uh, is, is in some ways important because uh, it does, I think, require at least purposefulness. Yeah, uh, mm. not just sort of yeah. whimsical. Oh, it, it'll just—it's not just going to like land on you, right? But, yeah, and, uh, and so I, I think that we. Again, being sort of creatures of, of our day and age, uh, I mean, I do think probably James and, of course, so many of the biblical writers were immersed in the Old Testament. I mean, that's sure. what they yeah. knew. Yeah. They yeah. didn't know the New Testament. Yeah. And uh, and I think we, we need to be we need to be mindful of that. And, and just t- two other quick things. Uh, it would be interesting theologically, you know, uh, to go to other cultures. Uh, I was in China for six years, mm. and there. And I remember one of the first things I read was a area of China where uh, it was primarily matriarchal mm. culture, and I, I think that would be really fascinating. What mm. uh, way, way to sort of uh, look at this, and and then finally, just as a model in, in my own life, uh, Saint Margaret of Scotland. Mm. Uh, if you read about her, she's someone who kind of embodies much of this. E- and even her husband seemed to be the man here saying, oh my gosh, you know, mm. how am I so fortunate? Mm. Uh, mm. And uh, so she, she, hers is a life I think that would be mm. kind of worth yeah. looking at. I think it's a, just loosely connected to what you said, I think it is a worthwhile, exer- a worthwhile exercise for us to think about who do we have in our lives who we feel like embodies wisdom, right? Who are the real people in our lives and our Christian walk that we can look to and, and see as examples? Because we do need that. Yeah, Marty? Um, one of the things I've come across both in Ken Keller, but also in this review of a new book by um, Marilyn Robinson, which sounds fascinating, I'm mm-hmm. reading Genesis, which just sounds mm-hmm. awesome. They both mm-hmm. make, make the point that the biblical creation narrative is utterly unique among all ancient narratives and Eastern narratives <coughs> in that it shows um, a good God creating with wisdom. Probably yeah. eight, with, with basically, wisdom is being there and with joy, joy at creating people, human beings, of yeah. incredibly high view of humanity. Whereas, all the, I mean, either the, in the East, the physical world is illusory. And the ancient other stories, it was creation came as a result of the gods battling it out with each other or, or wanting slaves to do their work for right. them. Yeah. People were slaves. But then wisdom, in the same way that there's a physical shape to the universe, 
Mm. That God created. You know, you can't fly airplanes if you don't know the laws of physics. To be able to, you can't a bridge won't stay up if you don't. In the same way, there's a, a moral shape and there's a um, a spiritual shape to God's creation. And wisdom is living with, within those boundaries. You've mentioned yeah. boundaries. Yeah. Living within the boundaries of of the sh- the shape that God has made for human flourishing. Yeah. For the flourishing of all of life. Mm-hmm. And so, it's when we think we can get away with the, the fool is the one that thinks they can get away with living outside yep. the moral and spiritual boundaries shape of the universe that God has made for human flourishing um, you know all of, and there's just so many versions of that today because we're such mm-hmm. an individualistic such and such a yeah know, such pride in the end I get I get to choose whatever yeah. I think is right and wrong for me polyamory yeah. is up and we we don't want to be bound. No, we don't want to be bound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think often of I think it's Psalm sixteen. Of it says, you know, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And I think of that. I was telling the students the other day. I don't have. I'm sorry to say I have very little scripture memorized, but I have that one memorized, and I go back to that one a lot when I feel my own like. Like, but you know, wanting to like, like I don't want to be bound. I don't want to be bound. But it's the same idea, right? That like, there is a shape. There is a shape to the moral universe. God has laid the boundary bonds, but He has laid them in pleasant places, and our inheritance then is delightful, um, right? Which is not what the world tells us. But yeah, Ben. I have a uh, sort of a different angle. So, so um, like you said. This is not, there's so much in here that's specific to, to a non-Western context or an ancient context. Yeah. Um, all the stuff that she's doing by hand, like build, like making fabric by hand, like not many people do that, you know, or, um, and yet, do you think that given how much of the passage is about working with your hands and being creative, do you think that there's some, um, more general word about wisdom than that, you know, that, mm. that there's some, you know, it's obviously not everyone that's going to go buy a loom and, 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 and work with the distaff. Right, <laughs> right. Whatever that is. But, um, is this just about economy, about, about providing for the household and selling fabric, or is there something of virtue in the, in the, Craftsmanship, yeah. So working with your hands. That's a good question. I I think I want to be a little careful with that because, again, I'm sensitive to the like really believing right that scripture is for all people in all times and all places, and that there are all kinds of people who, for all kinds of reasons, can't do that. Sure. Um. I, you might be right, Ben. In my head, I think about that connection for me is more connected to the Hebrew word for wisdom that has this aspect to it of like being an artisan, of like skill and artisan, and that it's, and that um, wisdom isn't something that's static, but it is something that we hold and maneuver and participate in. Um, and so that's where the connection is for me, but I don't, that's me. That's literally like 
the world according to Mary Frances. Those are just long lines that I was drawing when I was reading. I, I certainly personally, I love to work with my hands and do things and I enjoy it and I think there's value in it. And so I think when we, it's a good thing. It is a good and virtuous thing. I think I've, yeah, and it, I, I don't hear you saying this, but yeah, I think I, I want to be hesitant about being. Yeah, 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 Lenny. But just in a more general way, though, without having to, you know, make cloth and make things, where the sayers come from, right? Yeah. <laughs> mm. That we are made in the image of a maker. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. Making yeah. is an activity um, that, you know, and <clears throat> that we are meant to participate yeah. in. In the so connection between wisdom and creation. To, and, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah to, to bring things into being, yeah. not necessarily specific things, but to, to yeah. actually make things. Yeah, yeah. And, um, not, not just in a utilitarian way, but mm. part of what we were made to be. Yeah, and, yeah, part of participating in a created world mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. I think it's also worth noting that uh, prior to the Industrial Revolution, even bare minimum having clothing so that you would not be running around naked took an enormous amount of time and effort. So you can you can look at it as, you know, a, a skilled artisan, and you can also just look at it like all of the agricultural metaphors in the Bible, like this is People have to eat. what most women would have been doing yeah. huge amounts of their time just to survive. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if you want to get a loom, I'm not going to tell you not to, but like, <laughs> Recreational. Yeah. One of the We're not talking about hobbies yeah, here. We're not talking about hobbies. Yes. For personal application is just, you know, she does what is necessary for the health and survival of her household. Right? Yeah. 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 And I think, um, yeah, that's a great point. And I think that, I think for those of us who live and work at Labrie, we, like, I had a friend one time who was like, like, how do you have time to, like, make bread? Like, how? Do you, and I was like, well, that's my job. Like, that's what, like, I spend the day at home. And, you know, like, I do other things, too. But it's like that's woven in to the way that I live, you know. And I think given the way we live now, it, yeah, it's just hard. Easier for some people, harder for others. Um and yeah, it's a good point, Emily, of just like both the time and the effort needed to survive in a pre-industrial world. Yeah. Yeah. In a culture that in our culture that tends to have a hierarchy of you know the, the more important things are the cerebral things there, or or, or you know. Um, producing money or um, that it's really great to the actual dignity of manual labor, the dignity of working with your hands is, yeah. and again, it's, that was a necessity. But yeah. Things that yeah. But I, I'm just stuck today, one of our grandsons went to um, to a school where people were trained for for, um, for jobs, you know, where two of his best friends became plumbers after graduating from high school. And, 
and we had a plumber in our house today, an electrician, and I, I just think it's awesome that mm-hmm. you know these they're, they're young people, young young men for whom college was not university education, college that stuff just wasn't good for them, but mm-hmm. they have learned a skill with their hands, which is incredibly useful, which we all need, mm-hmm. and um, you know we they're there for us to hire when we. Right. There's so few plumbers they can charge whatever they want. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But yeah. The, the dignity, the dignity of manual labor in a culture that, or or a subculture, whichever culture we're living in, which tends to, to yeah. have this hierarchy. Yeah, and it's. I think of. I feel like Dick used to say. Dick, did you say this all the time? We would talk about. I'm just going to put words in your mouth. Um, <laughs> like the, the vocational things and the vocational hierarchy that exists, and now it's like. When the pipe is busted, you don't really want somebody to come pray over it. You want a plumber who knows what they're doing, who takes pride in their work, who is trained, who's cared about their process of training, cares about the work that they're doing, right? And so when we have that kind of like, well, what, right, what's the most spiritual, what's the most holy or whatever, and it's like that, it, it breaks down, yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you guys. I'm going to maybe call it there. Thanks for coming. Thanks for engaging.